so I officially have hit record and I am here with my really good friend, even though we admittedly have been neglecting our friendship for, we agree was an era <laughs> just now, but I'm here with Mishka Shabali and he is a writer, a songwriter, a teacher, musician, and we're, I've never done an episode about like addiction before, but it's a huge part of my story and it's a huge part of your story. And I just figured that you were the person I wanted to finally do an addiction episode with. So congrats, congratulations for making the cut. Thanks. Thanks. I, um, I, I guess I am that guy, you know, I mean, there's a bunch of podcasts I've done with other folks where they're like, well, I didn't realize we were going to talk about my addiction and sobriety today, but all right, let's get into it. You know, but I mean, <laughs> It's part of the human experience, you know, human experience, and it's part of our experience. And um, and also there's a fucking shitload of us out there uh, sort of, uh, you know, moving around in secret, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, and I like that. I mean, I want to talk about your story in general. So, like, I don't want it to just be like, oh, like the struggle. Like, I don't want it to be that. Like, I really do just want to, like, get at your story. But I also think that, like, it's so important to have these discussions because I think it alleviates stigma. Because I think that's, like, such a hard thing for people to deal with when they're coming out of addiction is, like, the shame and, like, the fear of judgment. And, like, you know, like, it takes a while to, like, gain that trust with your friends and your family, like, once you actually start cleaning up. And it's just, like, fuck it's like such a shit show i i do think that we're getting there though i i think that we're dragging like rest of humanity forward you know i mean i i feel like we're, we're sort of seeing these groups like vying for acceptance in the mainstream of of just like yeah fucking this is who we are um i i want the ham sandwich in the corner there you know like it's not a huge deal i was gonna give some context to just sort of like how we met and it was, I think the first time was at the Bird City Comedy Festival and you were hosting like, it was like in a, like, it felt like it was in a basement somewhere in downtown Phoenix, but there was like a storytelling, um, a storytelling show. And I had like, I had time to go explore other shows. And so I went and I found you like, and I'd never seen you before, but I was like, who is this like? like rock and roll garbagey looking guy on the scene. Cause like those are, that's my crew, right? Those are like my friends. So I was like, why yeah. don't I, why don't I know this guy? <laughs> and then you hosted, you hosted the storytelling because you, was it you're like, I had no idea like the extent of your work until I just watched like your, um your Kickstarter video that I'll provide a link to in the description. But I remember like as I was getting to know you more and like we were going to shows together and just like spending more time developing our friendship, you have like legit fans who come to your shows and like doe-eyed look at you for the stories that you've written. Yeah, it's weird. You know, I, um, one of my, my neighbor, Oscar, across the way, he and I are like homies. So, uh, you know, I, I see him almost every day. We hang out, you know, the, but he just, you know, he, his experience of me is like, I'm his like neighbor guy who always has like too many fucking dead trucks in his yard or whatever, you know, the weird old guy obsessed with the cat, you know, um, the, and then the, you know, but he's been a great friend to me. And the other day I gave him a copy of my book and I handed it to him and he looked at me and I was like, Oh God, I, I just ruined our friendship. You know, that we, uh, he was, we were just interacting like just two normal human beings. And then I did this thing where it's like, um, you know what I mean? There's the, the thing about, Oh, the fucking tribes in the Amazon, you know, and they say, Oh, a Polaroid takes a bit of your soul and stuff like that. And, and, you know, the, the sort of the, the motto of that or the, the, the moral of that story is like, Oh, those primitive people or whatever, but it's fucking true, man. As soon as you, put yourself onto a CD or fucking YouTube or a book, or as soon as you, you put yourself in media, it radically transforms people's experience of you. Um, and it's, and it, it, it transforms my experience of me too, you know, where when somebody comes up to me at a show, I don't know if they know me from, from being the sober guy or from having opened up for Stanhope back in the day or 
from the like ultra running community or if it's or if they just wandered in on a fucking Tuesday night and they were like, oh, that song's catchy, you mm-hmm. know, so it's, it's I don't really know uh, who to be, um, you know, until somebody gives me a clue and then I'm like, oh, all right, you know, the, um, but yeah, it's weird and, and we got through it, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, I'm glad that, I'm glad I met you, like, in the context that I did because, I just feel like I got to meet like a core version of you versus like your body of work, because I think that there's like a stark difference. It's like you said, like when you put yourself in media, it trans, it transforms how people experience you. Like I've, you know, I know content creators who like have people straight up fall in love with them because they think that they know them and like people experiencing your content, like assume, you know, them back. And so there's this like weird imbalance in the connection that forms. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, I mean, especially too, because, you know, the bulk of my work is autobiographical. So I write about, you know, the intimate details of my life. And, you know, I mean, I was just like talking to a dude on Twitter who was like mocking me for fucking drinking my pee when I was shipwrecked, you know, and that's, that's how he knows me. And that's, you know, so like, and he always, you know, tries to like fucking get a dig in there, you know, however, but the reason that he knows that is because I put that information out there and I, and also, and, and I don't have any information like that about him to reciprocate with. So it's, you know, it's like writing those stories, um, gave me a great living and like got me out of fucking working corporate jobs and bullshit like that. And I'm, you know, I'll always be grateful for my writing and to my writing, but also like fucking dating is weird, man. <laughs> you know, to, <laughs> to just go into a thing and be like, I have no idea how much information you have about me or not, you know? The, well, um, or like when you meet someone and you start dating them and then they start like researching your work and then it's like, what could yeah. be a normal playing field turns into something weird that like didn't have to be that way. And I feel like too, like as a content creator, and I don't know if this happens to you or not, but I feel like, I will have flashes of like something that I said in a podcast or something that I wrote in an article and I'm just like, I'll like have a flash of it. Like someone is reading it in that moment or something. And I'm like, Oh my God, like I, like I feel so seen, like I feel so vulnerable. Yeah. It's, you know, um, it's incredibly rewarding and it's incredibly revealing, you know, the, the, you know, sort of, I, I feel like when you're making good art, you are putting a sort of like naked unvarnished version of yourself out there, even if it's like the fucking Montero video, with, you know, which has all kinds of like drama and theatrics and whatever, you know, but um, the, uh, there, it, I, I, I was, I was doing a show with Jake Flores once and we were like driving back and sort of like doing the, the postmortem, you know, picking the night apart. And, uh, and I, I turned to Jake and I was like, you know, uh, wise man once told me, uh, sometimes you headline and sometimes you just play last. And Jake looked at me and he was like, dude, that, that's a fucking amazing line. Like who said that? And I was like, you did. <laughs> and he was like, what? And I was like, well, I, I mean, I don't know what it says about you that both that you forgot that line completely and also that you thought it was brilliant when you, <laughs> when, I, you when I reminded it to you, you know, mind you of it. But, um, but I mean, I think that it's tricky and it's complicated and it's a fucking drag sometime. And also, you know, it's, it's the life that we've chosen and I wouldn't fucking trade it for any other life you know? Mm-hmm. No, it's true. I mean, the freedom of not like, like being your own boss, like that's the, that's always been the ultimate goal for me. Like I never wanted to work for anyone else. And it seems like that's kind of your disposition as well. The best, I mean, all my best life advice has come from like cab drivers and bartenders, <laughs> but you know, maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, I was in the back of the cab. I was talking to the driver and he was like, listen, man, everybody's got to work, but you get to decide who you work for. And he said, I work for me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, fucking a man, I want to work for me too, you know? And, um, and I've never forgotten that. And I've never let go of that. And that was, you know, that was always my goal. And 
now I'm here and my boss is a cunt, but that's <laughs> fucking, it's a double-edged sword, you know, the, yeah. um, you know, I don't have any days off and I'm just sort of like, I always wake up and I'm like, Oh fuck, I got to do a thing, you know? Yeah. Um, but, um, but it, it really is, you know, it's the best life I know. And, and also too, like, you know, you and I being open about, um, our sobriety, our recovery, our history, our past, the shit that we've done, where we've been, it's, um, it's scary, but at the end of the day, it's empowering Mm -hmm. because I think if there were to be like some expose on me, it would be like, you know, breaking news, you know, Mishka Shabali actually kind of a quiet, boring guy now, you know, that like, nobody will ever dig up anything on me worse than the shit that I've written about myself, the stuff that I've confessed to, you know? Yeah. And I think there's a sense of relief in that too, because I like, I know no one has dirt on me because I'm like, I've fucking, I've said it all. Like you guys just know. (laughs) So it's, it's, it's a relief to like be in control of your reputation by like admitting to your fuck ups and then like choosing to be better. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, and, and also, I mean, I think that doing that, it establishes trust um, that people see you, you know, are able to see you as an authentic person. You know, I mean, I, I, I just taught my writing workshop and I and there was a guy who was sort of like apologizing again and again in, in, in a piece for sort of like fixating on women's bodies and like, you know, getting, um, you know, he was like very attracted to their hair. And I was like, bro you've done worse shit than this in your life. (laughs) It's this kind of empty confession, you know, uh, we all look at women's bodies and get too interested in it and in their, in their bodies and then specifically body parts and, you know, long hair or short hair or whatever you're into, you've done something worse than this. And if you're going to confess to something, confess to the real thing. Otherwise don't, you know, um, don't bother confessing, you know? And I, I mean, I think it's always the people who portray themselves to be sort of like, um, you know, righteous and morally upright. Those are always the conservative Republicans who are like doing meth in bathhouses. Mm-hmm. And not that there's anything wrong with doing meth in bathhouses, but just fucking be honest. Own it. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. that's a thing in my industry too, though, where people like, I mean, I, my industry can get so gross sometimes when there's like, like toxic positivity and like people are like uh, like oblivious to like their own wrongdoings and like but then they like stand in judgment of others but they tend to be like the most fucked up people like the meanest fucking people yeah the you know i mean there's a reason why i don't live in la you know i remember like i remember going out there from new york years ago and sort of getting off the plane and there, there was just this sort of like murmur of like no worries no worries no worries and I was like, when they say no worries, what they, that's not what they mean. What they mean is, God forbid there should ever be a worry because we wouldn't know how to fucking deal with it. Yeah. Or I have so many worries that I'm trying to conceal, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like my experience, like working sound in, you know, in clubs in New York is that like the fucking hardcore dudes and the, you know, the metal dudes were always super polite happy to set up and break down their own stuff, like happy to move their gear and whatever. And then it was like the fucking Brit pop and like indie rock kids who are total pieces of shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, so there's this uh, inversion of what we expect of people and who they are, or, you know, people put something out into the world. That's the opposite of who they feel they are inside, you know? There was actually a study, I think it was, I think it was like posted in the New York Times, but I could be getting my source wrong, but um, they like basically did this study that showed people who are gothic are, tend to be happier than the general public because like they've embraced death and they dance and they sort of just like, you know, have embraced their weirdness. And I think it's kind of funny because those are always, it's like the satanic panic crew, you know? If like, if you have a constant open dialogue with darkness, it's hard to be afraid of darkness, right? Mm-hmm. I, um, I'm trying to find a new therapist and, you know, they were like, oh, you have suicidal ideation? And I was like, yeah. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. I have since I was a kid. Think about suicide every day. And most days what I think is, 
ah, not today. You know, it's, it's like the, so don't, you know, I was like, don't worry about me. I'm not going to do anything. I promised my mom I'm not going to, and I'm not going to, but like the, to be able to, um, you know, and the guy I was talking to was sort of like, oh, when you feel like that, you know, sort of back away from it. And I was like, no, 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 that doesn't work at all, dude. What you have to do is go forward and then say, well, if I were to kill myself, well, no more dogs, mm-hmm. no more burritos, no more two for Tuesday on the classic rock station. No. And then suddenly I'm like, oh, fuck. No, I don't want to die at all. Like, yeah. I, I want to live, you know, like, and um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, so much of it is just sort of self-knowledge, being open and honest with yourself and uh, I don't know, nothing to be afraid of, you know? Yeah. And I think that like a lot of people do run away from that though, because like a lot of times people's darkness is attached to like things that they've done that they're ashamed of. And it's almost like they're like this cycle gets created where people like don't truly look at themselves. Don't truly look at their darkness. Like don't like acknowledge the the places that their mind wants them to go to sort shit out. And so they either like end up repeating patterns or they have anxiety because there's this like emotional baggage that's looming over them that like really if you just faced it and like did it in a healthy way that involved like a meditation or even like going hiking or getting into nature or seeing a therapist, like whatever that looks like for you, it's so much easier to like look at something, acknowledge it and release it. It might be hard work in the moment, but it's so much easier and healthier than like trying to carry something forever because you're avoidant. Totally agree. The, um, and what's frustrating to me about that process of like dealing with shit is that when it's represented in the media, it's always a one-time thing that Mm -hmm. somebody epiphany and they fucking go into the dark closet and throw away their father's blazer or whatever, you know, something symbolic happens and then they're like free. And it's not like that, man. It's like, it's like uh, yoga or it's like correcting your posture where you could one day, April 7th, I decided to correct my posture then fucking April 8th and April 9th and every day for the rest of your life, you have to remember to stand up straight and not to slouch and, you know, shit like that. And I, I go this, through this thing all the time of sort of like figuring shit out and curing stuff in myself or fixing stuff in my life and then forgetting it, forgetting the progress I've made. And, you know, I, I have because my my sister was sort of bouncing around and I was always the the unsettled one in my family and then now I'm like the settled one. So I wound up with all the family photo albums. Mm-hmm. And a good way for me to measure where I am in my life is to go back and look at myself, look at pictures of myself as a little kid because flipping through those pictures, I'm like, fuck that kid. <laughs> fuck that kid. Fuck that kid. And, and then I'm like, the kid in that picture is fucking six years old, dude. Like, why, why are you like, fuck that kid? Like, <laughs> what, what's your problem with you at, and I'm like, well, you know, look what I grew up to do, or I like, you know, wagged my wiener at the babysitter, or, you know, whatever, like, just <laughs> normal, like, childhood human foibles. Wait, what did the babysitter do? Wait. <laughs> Oh, now I'm going to fucking think about that. Be like, uh, <laughs> makes you like, put that away. Uh, you know? <laughs> that's the, pro- that's the appropriate response. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which, uh, people have been telling me to put shit away my entire life. So, <laughs> the, um, the, but, um, you know, it made, made me realize that that, or that process of going back and looking at old pictures makes me realize that like, um, as much progress as I made in my life, as far as sort of like forgiving myself and trying to be positive and trying to move forward and stuff like that. It's so easy to forget. And it's so easy to lapse back into that sort of negative shame, self-blaming, um, self-hatred, you know? Um, but it's, you know, it's like correcting your posture. You just remember, and you're like, okay, no, I got to do that. You know? And then you just do that for the rest of your life. Yeah, no, I actually, I know what you're talking about. Kind of. I like found an old picture of me from when I was seven, like, like a couple of weeks ago and I was like in my little ballet tutu and I was like, 
oh, you're a fucking crazy bitch. I was like, you're going to get, you're going to turn into a junkie. Like, you're going to fucking shoot up heroin. And yeah. I was like, you're crazy. Like, I was just like, you're like, like, I didn't know how else to like, it was weird to like have a picture of you little trigger, like the worst things you did as an adult. I've seen pictures of me as a baby. I'm like, you're going to fucking grow up and listen to the Steve Miller band in ninth grade. And that's unforgivable. (laughs) (laughs) The stupidest judgy shit towards a fucking innocent child, you know? And the, so I, I don't know. It's a relief to hear that you have caught yourself doing that as well. And I think we can both agree that it's bullshit. We need to stop. Yeah. And I mean, I try to like mostly just be like, um, you know, like, I don't know, like not hard on my inner child, but I think I'm just like, I feel like now I'm just like, whoa, you did not have self-awareness. Like you just were not paying attention and you went on this crazy fucking path. But I'm curious, kind of like turning back to your path, like how do you feel like you ended up like sort of like to like the bottom back up to the top? And like, what did that look like for you? I'm like loaded question. Here's the loaded question to outline the rest of the interview. You went in with such a soft touch and then you just dropped out. (laughs) I warned you. You knew this is what we'd be talking about. (laughs) Yeah, I know. The, um... I don't know. I mean, I think for me, my um, alcoholism wasn't my problem. It was an expression of my problem. And I think my problem was um, I was in tremendous pain and I was, I had given in completely to sort of nihilism and defeat and hopelessness and, um, and, you know, and, and sort of negativity and, cynicism and you know just every every different way of phrasing sort of bad thoughts you know and I was I was angry you know carried a ton of anger and um and and I think the way that I kept that in check and also the way that I expressed my my sadness uh was by drinking you know and um you know, alcoholism or, or any addiction is, is a great organizer, you know, where it's sort of like um, a duffel bag where, that you can just throw every issue in, in your life in that bag and be like, well, I'm, you know, of course I can't, um, of course I can't drive or remember where my car is or be counted on to pick you up from the airport or be counted on to do anything because I'm an alcoholic, you know, so you then you have that, that justification, that umbrella. Um, and you know, then when you get sober, it's, it's so much harder because all of it sort of, um, then you have to sort through all the issues, you know, in that bag. But, you know, I mean, for me, like, you know, I moved to, I moved to New York when I was 21 with $300 and I was like, I'm going to make it as a writer and a musician. You know, I was obsessed with like Nick Cave and John Spencer and, um, you know, I was, I was like, I'm going to, you know playing a, some fucking sleazy, you know, East Village rock band. Um, and I did for a while. And, you know, I got into Columbia and I got my master's in writing. And then I did nothing. You know, the um, things went south with the band when the Strokes got their big break opening up for us and then sort of like blew us out of the water. And a friend died and I quit the band and then I, like I got shipwrecked and then nine 11 happened. And it was just like all, you know, all this shit, like one thing after another. And then finally, like I just sort of, um, you know, and then I, I was playing in another band and I was like, I, you know, I can make it as a bass. I'm not good enough to be a guitar player, but I can make it as a bass player. And I, I pinned sort of so much, so many hopes on this band, you know, beat the devil making it. And then, you know, in the 11th hour, you know, we were talking to the guy who had discovered like Sonic Youth and um, and then the band broke up, you know, in a sort of horrible way. And uh, and the singer tried to sue me for over a million dollars. And uh, yeah. And then it was just, you know, like I just sort of been grinding and grinding forever in New York. And I, I woke up one day and I was like, you know, it's, you know, I'm I'm 31, been here for 10 years. 10 years of like working so hard and busting my ass and like just not fucking making. And, um, and I finally had this epiphany, not that 
my drinking and my drug use was going to kill me, uh, but that it wasn't going to kill me. And, and that scared me more than anything else. Yeah. I was like, I drank as much as I could and I've done every fucking drug I get my hands on and none of it's killed me. And I'm 31 and now I have to realize that like, I, I may continue to live longer than this and my life is just going to get smaller and grayer and more claustrophobic and until it gets to a point where death will be a release. Mm-hmm. And that scared the shit out of me. And um, my, my band Fresh Kills did a two-week tour of Europe we had pinned all these hopes on and we got back and like some of us, we'd lost our jobs and we were broke or, you know, and like, I was just so exhausted and I was like, I'm fucking done, you know, and I quit drinking and, um, and by that point, you know, like I'd quit writing and, and sort of, and music had become just sort of like a hobby or a, my bowling league, my way of hanging out with my friends. And then, um, I, an editor I'd worked with, you know, who had written about like drugs and fucking sex toys and shit for, um, he asked me if I wanted to write something for Amazon. And I was like, well, I'm sober. So I don't really have any stories anymore. And he was like, well, what about that one time you got shipwrecked? And I, I was like, I was like, or no, no, he said, he said, you don't have one story left. And I said, well, there's that one time I got shipwrecked. And he said, Mishka, you asshole. That's the story. And I had already written it. So I gave it to him, published it through Amazon. It went to number one, you know, on the Kindle singles chart. That first month I made like 6,500 bucks in royalties and then like 7,500 bucks the next month. And I, I got my first check and I was like, what the fuck? You know? And mm-hmm. I, I lost at the bar and I was like, yo, I quit. And he was like, why are you quitting? And I was like, yo, look at this check, man. Like, fucking, <laughs> I'll quit too, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and then that was it, you know? I, and I just, um, I've never held another job since then. The next single that I published through Amazon was like wildly more successful. Um, I did leapfrog Dean Coots and uh, Stephen King to hit the number one spot. And then it stayed, flickered in and out of number one for like five months you know, something insane like that. And, um, that helped me sell a book that helped me get the teaching gig at Yale. Um, you know, that paved the way for a bunch of other like writing stuff. I, you know, I just had another writing gig come in today. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a really wild swing from sort of where I was, where, there was just like a, like a diminishing number of bars that I could go into. I've just been thrown out of so many of them or falling asleep on the bar. Like just, you know, the, at to getting sober and like teaching myself how to run and then like running around the city and sort of rediscovering the city that way. And I mean, Renee, I really had to completely tear down the, the personality or the persona or the person I was because I built my entire identity around drinking and then I had to, I had to be somebody else and that was terrifying. Well, I think it's like, I think it's really important too though that you picked up running because like, I know for me, like when you're an addict and you're using substances, like so much of that is about like, not just getting out of your mind, but like you get out of your fucking body And you just like, you know, you're not healthy. And so your body doesn't feel good, but you like, you disconnect from the signals that your body is sending you to try to like ask you to be healthier. And so like, I, like I took up hiking and I like, I lost like 30 pounds in a year, but because like, I have always been pretty skinny and I didn't even realize like until I got sober that I looked like shit because I wasn't thinking about it. But I think that like you getting into running, like for me, that was almost like, like my crutch, like my new addiction. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I talk to people all the time and they're like, um, oh, bro, you're just, you know, replacing one addiction with another. And that fucking drives me nuts. I, I mean, at this point, I've heard it so many times that if somebody fucking random drop, you know, drops that little nugget of fake knowledge on me in a bar, I just, I'm just like, fuck off. Like, mm-hmm. get away. That's the shit I've ever heard. Yeah. 
I used to fucking pound like 20 beers in a night and now I'll drink 10 seltzers, you know, like, yeah, take me away. I'm a fucking seltzer addict. You know, <laughs> it, it's ridiculous. It's called, it, you know, it's what they call in, you know, in the recovery world, harm reduction. If you fucking, if you're a junkie and then you, you stop shooting and, and you just drink all the time, that's positive progress. If you drink all the time and then you, you just, you get stoned all the time, that's positive progress. That's fucking harm reduction. That's what, that's a way that saves lives, that transforms people's lives, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the, and the other thing is that like, I, I've, I've been sober fucking 12 years now, 30 dozen. I have never gotten addicted to running. I fucking hate running. <laughs> running is the worst. Yeah. I hate it. It sucks. I ran this morning. It was garbage. It was bullshit. The best part of the run at the end when I got to stop, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, I don't, um, it's, it, I'm never like, fuck yeah, I'm going to go run today. You know, like, no, it's just, it's, I force myself to run each day because I, uh, I hate running less than I fear my old life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and if people think I've replaced one addiction with another, like they should be, it should be fucking like bathing me in flowers for doing that because of the, the addiction that I've chosen chosen is so nourishing for my body and for my mind. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like, I feel like honestly people who aren't like experienced addiction themselves or like, like it's so hard to like comment on someone's personal disposition anyway. And like, I mean, I do think that there are like addictive personality types, but I like, I totally agree with what you're saying that it's just like, shut the fuck up. (laughs) It's like, shut the fuck up. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, listen, I, I do know people who are like legit, um, you know, exercise addicts and stuff like that. And, and, And that is real. And I'm not saying that it's not right. It's never been my problem. You know, my problem is like laying on the couch and fucking eating a bag of Twizzlers. Yeah. Well, I also think it's no one's business to comment on like if you happen to replace an addiction with a healthier, like with a healthy addiction, that's like, like you said, seltzer water or like or running. Like if that even were the case, like who are they to comment one way or the other? Well, this this is one of the things that drives me nuts, you know, and I think this is some like I think this is the next step for people in recovery, um, like living in public, you know, um, I smoke cigarettes occasionally, you know, like fucking somebody's got to do it. All right. I support, you know, the starving tobacco farmers of America from time to time. Um, the, uh, whenever somebody sees me smoking a cigarette, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought you were sober. It's like, yeah, motherfucker. I am. I'm smoking a cigarette. Um, is it appropriate for me to say to you, well, it looks like you're 60 pounds overweight. You probably have type two diabetes and you're probably, you know, at risk for hypertension and all sorts of, you know, sort of comorbidities. No, that people recognize that for me to be like, Oh man, you really like fucking packed it on after Thanksgiving. Didn't you? That that's totally fucking inappropriate. Yeah. But if you're, if you're, God forbid you're an addict or an alcoholic who's been public about your recovery and the fucking guy at the gas station, the guy at the circle K, everybody wants to just weigh in and be like, Oh, you know what you should really try is alcohol and water or whatever. the <laughs> Dude, I had, I, uh, had like a falling out with like my last podcast, like partner, we had a, we had a falling out and she kind of like, was in a public discussion with someone about the about the podcast breaking up and someone commented, oh, I thought that the podcast just broke up because she was doing heroin again. And I was like, fuck you. Like, I can't like I can't choose not to work with someone anymore because it means I'm a junkie now. Like, that's fucking crazy. And that's the thing is that, you know, addicts have always been and will always be. Well, we'll see. Hopefully we're making progress, but we're, we're treated as like almost human. You know, uh, um, I, I remember this popped up on my like Facebook memories. I, you know, I was in a bar in New York, like I'd played a show and then I was getting ready to go home. And, um, you know, a girl came over and was like, um, 
chatting me up and she's like, oh, what are you drinking? And I was like, you know, uh, seltzer with and maybe a splash of cranberry if I'm feeling like getting fucking wild, you That's know. That's pretty crazy. You should calm down and, with your cranberry. I know. And she was like, you're drinking water. Like, you know, what's wrong with you that you're drinking water? And she and I just put my arm around her and I leaned in real close and I put my I put my lips right by her ear and I said, because I'm a fucking alcoholic. And then I turned around and I walked out because fuck that girl. You know, mm-hmm. like, fuck you to go up to anybody in a bar and be like, you're drinking water. Like, get the fuck out, you know? Yeah, it's none of your, yeah, especially if it's someone that you have no, like, former connection with that you don't know at all. Even if you do have yeah, a connection, you know, it's kind of like, mm. And I, I used to be a lot less abrasive about that shit. And, um, you know, I used to sort of like try to give those people a pass or be like, oh, I'm, I, I'm sorry, I can't, you know, or, or, you know, apologize for who I am or, you know, or for what I am. But, you know, the, you know, if you don't have a fucking gluten free option at your barbecue, people are ready to set the block on fire, you know, and like, I'm not saying that we shouldn't um, cater to those people. I'm saying that there should be more sensitivity towards people in recovery um the um and i'm gonna fight for that by being a total prick to everybody who steps out of line with me you know because i'm i'm comfortable at this point in my i i'm not just comfortable with being sober i'm comfortable with having been an alcoholic i recognize that i learned a lot in my life by being out of control, you know, mm-hmm. I, I have so much more empathy for people who are suffering now than I did before. When I was a young person, I'm embarrassed to this, I was like a social Darwinist of like, well, why don't they just get a job? Or why are we doing welfare to these people? Blah, blah, blah. You know, which is fucking codified racism I picked up from my dad. And like, but being a drunk and like, at one point I had to switch to slip on shoes because I could not tie my shoes in the morning. And it's a, it's a small thing, but it was fucking humbling in the moment, you know, and my boss caught it and called me out on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that was one of those things where it was, you know, these sort of like walls I put up in my heart, you know, um, that started falling, you know, and then when I, you know, walking home from work, seeing some, you know, some neighborhood Polish dude, you know, blacked out on the sidewalk. It, it made me realize that, like, that could be me. You know, that's that's the direction I'm, I'm headed. I've fucking woken up on the street plenty of times before. Yeah. You know, the I'm I'm no better than him, and he's no worse than I am. You know, and like, maybe he just needs a hand. and whether that hand is like, you know fucking 20 bucks or a night in a hotel or getting locked up and going away. I don't know what that hand is. I don't know what help he needs, but there is a person in there. There's a human being in there. There's a heart in there. There's an intellect in there, you know? Yeah. Uh, And I, and I would, I could, I don't think I could have learned that without being an alcoholic, you know? So, um, I think that, you know, it's, it's not good to live in a state of powerlessness, but I think it's good for people to temporarily have uh, feelings of powerlessness, you know, that there's, there's something to learn there. Um, I, I remember talking to a buddy, you know, when, when me too was sort of just like cresting, you know, and that was a thing that like um, myself and the sort of guys in my circle, um, you know, had to, had to deal with, you know, the, of like, Oh, what's, what's happening. It's like, Oh, you know, well, we knew that like women were going through shit, but I, I, I just thought it was every girl I'd ever dated. I didn't realize it was every woman ever, you know? Yeah, Cause it and, really is. It really kind of is every woman ever. Yeah. And, um, and who's doing it right. Mm-hmm. I had this, that thing on my Facebook feed of watching every single woman on my Facebook feed being like, well, here's my story. And like all the guys were fucking dead silent. And I was like, well, who's doing it to the, these women if if it's none of us you know it's it's no it's us it's fucking us like yeah. we need you know there needs to be the next wave of, of rec- public reckoning you know for men and by men 
But I, I was talking to a guy and he was like, um, he's like, all oh, this Me Too shit is getting crazy, you know? Like, at this point, I'm, like, afraid to, like, you know, just, like, go into a help, hotel room with a woman. And I was like, bro, that's how they've been feeling since the dawn of time. No shit. I like that turnaround. <laughs> Thank you. Probably, <laughs> probably, probably good and helpful. Um, it's good for them for us to have that moment of awakening. And it's good for us too to be like, oh fuck, this that's what fear feels like. That's what it feels like to 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 walk past a human being and not know if they're a human being or if they're a weapon. You know? Yeah. It's very true. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like, you know, still a fucking shitload of progress to be made on that front. But, um... Unlike all of the fronts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. I'm curious. I do, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. I, I, I do think that we are making progress, though. You know, I mean, it, I think it's easy to look at all fucking this shit about, like, just read on the news, you know, like, um, you know, Bill Cosby said, like, uh, oh, I feel like I'm, you know, I, I, this feels like a dream or something, you know, like getting out of prison. And I was like, yes, you know, that's the, ironically, those are the words that the 60 plus women that he raped uh, could have said when they were waking up to fucking him on top of them, you know, yeah. and, and it's, it makes you furious just to like the miscarriage of justice there. But I do think that things are getting better. I think that things are getting less bad. You know, I think that we are slowly dragging ourselves and each other and the rest of the world forward. And yet we are making in incremental progress, you know. I hope so. I feel like I feel like you're right. And I tend to I tend to lean towards that disposition as well. But there are also times where I'm just like, fuck everything. And I have to do like total like news palette cleansers where I just like totally unplug for like two or three days just because I can't look at any yep. more bullshit. Yeah. But I feel like anything that you can do that like couldn't like is a contribution to change is like the way to navigate out of that, like raising money for different charities or even just like being an advocate for people who are disenfranchised. Yeah. The, um, a friend of mine here, her parents have a place in Chandler and they have a bunch of fruit trees and they're older and, and there's, it's like more fruit than they can pick or that they know what to do with. So when my nephew was in town. We took the truck down there and just picked as much fruit as we could. And then when I run, I always run along the canals here and there's always, um, homeless trans people, homeless junkies, homeless alcoholics, people suffering from mental illness, you know, I mean, and, and people just down on their fucking luck, you know, who are out sort of hanging around there. And there's a couple of like full on encampments. And I was like, um, talking to my nephew and I was like, all right, we're going to, you know, bring, you know, some fruit to these people. Let's stop at the CVS here. And we'll buy a couple cases of water. And I went in with him. And, you know, he like got in line and I was like, oh, here, let me give you money for the water. And he's like, no, no, I, I want to pay for this. Aww. You know, and he's like, he's like 18 or 19. And, and he was like, no, 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 I, I got this, you know, and he wanted to contribute. Um, the, uh, I, I, and you know, that made me so fucking happy. I Just, feel like, you know, yeah, that'd make you feel really good for kind of being that example and then him taking it into his own hands. Yeah. Yeah, that kid is so much better than I was when I was that age. I was just a piece of shit. <laughs> He's so great. It's nice to have, like, I've have, I have a niece. She's only four now. But it's nice to have, like, these little members of your family that are, like, young. And you can sort of help shape them and, like, steer them away from your mistakes. But, like, you don't have the responsibility of, like, full-blown rearing a child. Man, I did a I did a car trip with my nephew Micah uh, a couple uh, last summer, summer before. I guess it was last summer. The um, I found this little old pickup truck in a hay field and rescued it from there. And then he and I in Idaho, and then he and I drove it back here. And it was awesome. We talked about everything. We talked about drinking and drugs and sex and music and politics and fucking Amazon and the oligarchs and you know all the shit. Mm -hmm. And and I was like, well, 
okay, this is the part where the cool uncle has to breach the subject of like homophobia and transphobia and, you know, talk to him about, you know, the, um, it, you know, it's not just male and female that, you know, people are who they are. And we're learning that there's an infinite number of shades of, you know, of gender and, um, and I like I like launched into this conversation with him in a fucking like this awkward way where I was like, oh, I don't want to have this conversation, but I know that I need to that is, you know and he was like, Oh yeah, no, I mean it's people people should be free to do whatever they want to do and be who they actually are. They're actual themselves and it it doesn't bother me and, and why would it? It doesn't have anything to do with me. It, it doesn't affect me at all. If if somebody wants to use this pronoun or that pronoun or make up their own pronoun like I can remember that yeah and I was like I was like holy shit you know he just he he like he didn't grow up getting called a fag every time you know fucking 10 times a day when he was a little kid or like if you cry when you you know fall off your bike or people like you're gay you know like that was never that just his generation they never came up with with gay as a pejorative yeah and so he just didn't get all that, um, that, that homophobia or, you know, and not even like, um, virulent homophobia, you know, but the sort of casual homophobia that's like cough or that's like uh, corn syrup, you know, that's just in, in everything, you know, when it comes to like men interacting with men yeah, and, and it was so funny to me because I just like build up, I built up this whole conversation in my mind that I was going to have with him. And then he just, in the length of a tweet, he was like, no, nah, I got this, bro. And I was like, well, fuck. All right. Uh, does he live in talk Phoenix? About cigarettes and how they're bad and yeah. how you should never smoke. You know, like, I don't know. Where does he live? And like, how old is he? Oh, he's the best. I miss him so much. He's, dude, is, he's 19. He's six, seven. He like he looks like uh, he has a physique of like uh, young Spider Man, mm-hmm. um, and he's he's in Denmark right now with his girlfriend. He taught himself. He, my family's Ukrainian, generations back. I, I you know I know nothing about it, but he got really interested in the family lineage. So he taught himself how to speak Russian from an app. Applied for a scholarship to go and study overseas. Went went over and studied in Russia for a year. While he was there, he, he you know he met his girlfriend, and then so he's been like doing construction over in Denmark, you know, and and hanging out with her over there, um, you know, before he goes to school in the fall. And he's like nineteen, and like I don't know, it just blows my mind, you know. And and that's one of the things, you know, I when I think of Mick, that's one of the things I I used to re- sort of remind myself that um, the for every Cosby story, there's fucking 10 kids like him who are yeah. coming into the world with the tools that they need to make good decisions, to be compassionate, to, to care, to, to like, you know, um, my sister, when Mika was much younger, my sister was a, um, uh, like a, an assistant teacher or something. Um, and she was like sort of covering in PE one day, you know, and there was the kid in the class with down syndrome and Micah came into the class and didn't see that his mom was there. And the kid with down syndrome was like sitting by himself and Micah like, you know, ran right over to him. And my sister was just tensing up. She was like, if he, if he says one fucking word to that kid, I'm, I will fucking, I'll smack him, yeah. you know? And Mika just sat down next to the kid and was like, hey, what's up, buddy? What's going on? How are you? You know, how's your day? And my sister was like, oh, my God, I almost cried instantly, you know, because you try to teach your kids some of this stuff and you never know if it's going to stick or not. And then to see them, you know, like applying it in the real world. Awesome. I'm glad to know that. Because I don't have I don't have any kids really that age in my life. I guess I kind of do, but not that I really talk to that like with that much depth. So I'm glad to hear that there is like a resurgence of compassion happening with the youth. Because I remember like Fe- like Phoenix now is like it's gotten way better. But Phoenix when I was in high school was a fucking shit show. And my best friend was gay, and he got his ass kicked like once a month 
on a good month, you know? And so like, I'm just glad that we're moving away from that because it's just so awful to be around. And it's like one of those things that makes you like, fuck, like what's going like, to, what are we going to be as a society? But I think it's good to like highlight those instances where kids are compassionate and they are more evolved than maybe some of the people we experienced as kids. Yeah. I mean, I think that the horror stories are what, you know, stick out in our heads. You know, the, I was driving by the canal the other day and I saw recovery divers. I was like, uh, that's, they're not there to rescue. They're there to pull a body out, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that, I mean, that's bothered me since it happened, but there are so many times where I'm running now and I'll see either another runner who I've seen a bunch of times or like, you know, the lady out in her, in her yard all the time, like fucking raking the dirt or sweeping the dirt or whatever, or like a homeless person who I've helped or who I've spoken to, or, you know, that we sort of know each other. You know, there've been so many times I have these positive interactions and I like forget them or I allow myself to forget them. And I, in my head, I magnify the times I see recovery divers or, you know what I mean? Or I see some like horrible scene. Yeah. So you have to like make an effort to keep things in perspective where you have to like keep that balance. Otherwise it gets to that like murky place. I feel like in your psyche. Yeah. 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 If you, I mean, if you want to see like all kind of, you know, doom and gloom, like, Oh, it's definitely there, man. Just fucking read the news, you know? Yeah, totally. Totally. I know that's why there has to be like a balance. It's why it's like, I try to watch animal rescue videos after I read the news too much. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, you know, part of my recovery program is spending 10 minutes with my cat each day where I am not looking at my phone. I'm not watching TV and I'm not eating and I'm not doing another thing. I'm just focusing my energy on her 10 minutes out of every day, whether she has this game she loves where I chase her and then she chases me and I, you know, and she'll do that all fucking day or just like, um, just scratching her from like the fucking tip of her nose to the tip of her tail, you know, that those kinds of things of just, and to, to do that as like a meditation of I'm, I'm just going to focus positive energy on another being for 10 minutes uninterrupted every day dude that is a powerful antidepressant that is animals, a powerful... are. animals are little healers yeah man totally true the um i was for, for a while i was living at my sister's in california and i was living in a uh in a trailer in their backyard and um you want a good opening line for a for meeting a, a sexy lady to, to come and fool around with you it is not uh hey you want to come back to my trailer in my sister's backyard <laughs> yeah you know, it's just like in this like little conservative right-wing republican town just so fucking lonely just dying and i, I told myself in you know they had these big beautiful dogs and i just told myself every single day i need to get down on all fours with the dogs just be there with them, hang out with them, let them chew on my ears, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and that got me through the winter, you know? Yeah. I'm curious because you sort of mentioned like, um, you know, spending time with like your cat, like spending 10 minutes with your cat as part of your recovery program. Is this like something you've like created for yourself, like a mindfulness that exists within yourself? Or is there like an actual program that you've found that works for you? I mean, the, you know, when you're sober for a long time, you, you, whether you mean to or not, you end up assembling this sort of like sober toolbox of like all the tools that you use to prevent yourself from using again, but then also the two, the tools that you use to, to take up the time if you're fucking, you know, in a hotel room in a strange city or ways to, um, to, to pick yourself up when you're feeling down or to calm yourself down when you're getting too worked up or whatever, you know? So, and I, I feel like I have a pretty good toolbox 
Um, but I'm always looking for new tools and I'm always looking for, you know, it's the, um, you know, it's like, uh, it's like COVID, you know, the, the addiction part of your personality, the enemy mind, the person inside you who wants to see you dead, they're constantly evolving. Right. So your, your toolkit needs to be constantly evolving, you know, and, um, you know, some of the things that help me are uh, working with my hands. Um, particularly if it's something complicated, if it's like rewiring a guitar or like fixing a car or something like that, to have a discrete physical task there where I'm like, oh, well, I need to find a way to get that, not off to get to that. Thinking about that will prevent me from obsessing about, will my dad ever recognize my accomplishments? Or, you know what I mean? The big mm-hmm. questions. You got to just focus on like little questions, you know, and then the... You know, I mean, it's big in AA, you know, the like acts of service and, I'm, you know, no, I'm not going to go to a fucking food kitchen and like serve food to people or like, but, you know, when everyone, you know, for my, for Christmas and my birthday and shit like that, we'll do like a run around the neighborhood and I'll, I'll bring cash with me and just every homeless person I see gets fucking five bucks or 10 bucks or 20 bucks or whatever, you know, people are like, Oh, you should give them food or whatever. Fuck that, man. If they want to, if that's going to fucking buy them beer and they're going to have a good day because it fucking have a good day. It's my birthday. Have a good day, you know? And so it's just like, it does acts of service doesn't need to be, you know, anything more than seeing your neighbors struggle to, to get the TV up in the bed of their truck and be like, Hey, hang on buddy. I'll help you with that. Or, You know, I, or help them change a tire or whatever. I do like that you're like, I don't care what they spend the money on, though, because I've had like I've given money to homeless people while I was with like a friend or something or like, you know, most of my friends are kind of a little bit more left leaning than that. But like maybe like a family member who's not as progressive. That's like, oh, they're just going to buy drugs or alcohol. It's like, I don't fucking care. Like, <laughs> you know what? Uh, I know what it's like to be a junkie who needs a hit. So like, I'll, like, oh, yeah. It's not my job to to get you clean, but if you know you're in a tough spot, I'm I'm not gonna shy away from showing you compassion, especially when you don't know one way or the other where that money's gonna go. And and you know, to, for somebody to say, oh, they're just gonna buy beer, or they're gonna like, um, you know, you know, get a fucking dime bag or whatever, like that. You don't know that. That's your negative assumptions at work, you know, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's like. Those are the same people who are telling you, oh, you're just replacing one addiction with another, or, you know what the real problem is, or, you know, the, they just want to, um, want to like pull out the, the stitches of the positive thing that you just did or the positive thing that you're trying to do. They're trying to say, oh, what you did there is really, it's not that, you know, it's not that good the um fuck that man i'm just gonna like try and do all the good shit that i can yeah um you know schedule and budget permitting and um and not all of it's gonna pan out you know but um it's not gonna stop me from trying you know yeah i wanted to sorry go ahead no you go ahead I wanted to just sort of, cause we're pretty much at an hour now, but I wanted to kind of like ask you a final question. There's like shit I wanted to talk to you about that we just didn't get to, but we'll have to do another episode at some point in the future, maybe in person when I'm in Phoenix next, but I want yes. to, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like dying to get back to Phoenix when the weather is decent so I can see people, but, um, you'll be on my list of friends to visit, but I wanted to ask you because I feel like, I feel like it can be really difficult to like advise an addict because I feel like so much of like the process of getting clean and sober is like personal and it's like unique to each individual which is why I think like programs like NA and AA have like a high failure rate because it's like it's too regimented and like this structure that's like supposed to be able to apply for everyone when everyone's different but like if you were going to advise someone who like wanted to be supportive of an addict like what would you say? Ooh, um, I would say that 
what we conceptualize as help often isn't helpful. Um, you know, I think that it's funny because this is the exact opposite of what we were just talking about. But when I was sort of at the end of my run, you know, there were all kinds of people who would sort of like pay my parking tickets or like help me get my car back after I got towed or like get me a job when I got fired or get me another job when I got fired or get me another job when I got fired from that. Yeah. And the, what actually helped me was when people were trying to destroy me. And, and then I had to fight back and I had to like have my wits about me and I couldn't be shit based all the time, you know? And, um, so I think, um, you know, for somebody who's trying to, um, okay, how about this? If you're trying to help an addict, give them unconditional love and very conditional support. Yeah. That's a great way right? to put it. Yeah. I was talking to a woman and she was like, Oh, my son's 24 years old and like, he can't, you know, stop using. And I was like, well, what's the situation? And she was like, well, you know, the, we've, we've done everything that we can to help him. Like we, you know, we gave him a credit card. Like he has a car. He lives in the basement for free. And I was like, yo, t- take away the fucking credit card, take away the car kick him out of the basement he's 24 years old why is he living with you mm-hmm. when i was you know i don't think i was even 18 my parents were like well we're done yeah you know and um why would this if you provided me with a free car and a credit card and a place to stay in your basement i would relapse because <laughs> why why the fuck would i do anything else you've taken all the the, the good positive work, the hustle that you need to fill up your life with and you've taken it away from the, you know, from this kid, you know, the fucking let his life get hard, you yeah. know, and, um, and then see what he does. Um, yeah. Cause it's like enabling. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's definitely enabling and the, I find enabling and dysfunctional and toxic masculinity are words we hear so much so often that we've sort of forgotten what they mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm always trying to rephrase that. So I think that's why I, I, I want to go with, you know, with unconditional love and conditional support, you know, because um, just to, to force people to see it, you know, see it another way. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I like the thing that helped me was that like when I, you know, had my horrible like had to get clean moment was like so much love and support and like did not, you know, like they didn't put any shame on me for what was happening. It was just like about nurturing me getting better. So I feel like what you said is totally accurate. I think, too, you know, that, you know, again, talking about like, you know, media and how it affects how we perceive things, you know, it's it's always like a, a battle. Um, you know, we, we always see it as, oh, you know, Wendy's battle with heroin, you know, or, you know, Stephen's battle with cough syrup or whatever, you know, I, yeah, I, I, drinking was a, an absolute nightmare and that's why I did it for 17 years. No, it was a fucking blast. I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. I loved alcohol, loved drinking. I my, my buddy fucking dug up a picture of me drinking two beers at once. That's how much I loved it, you know, <laughs> yeah. like fucking the DP, you know, the, but like, I, I loved it until it became a total nightmare, you know? And I think that's one of the things that people need to hold in their heads too, is that it's, you know, it, it's not the sort of noble suffering addict and like that devil morphine or whatever, you know, like sometimes we don't, we can't quit because we're not ready to quit because we still love the shit, yeah. you know? And, and I think you've got to get to a place where, uh, where you're ready to break up with the drug, you know? I feel like I can remember me saying like, uh, I will quit, but not yet. Like, <laughs> like I know I'll have to do it one day, but like, I'm just going to fucking snort this oxy real quick. Like, Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh. It was so good talking to you. Um, I know you have some stuff probably that you need to promote. Um, and if people want to find you, like where should they look for you? What have you got going on right now? This is going to release on like next week. So, you know, just awesome. give you a timeline idea. 
Well, hopefully next week or or shortly thereafter, I should have the Kickstarter up. The so I published a series of seven best-selling Kindle singles. Um, you know, the long run sold like a hundred thousand copies or something ridiculous like that. It's been translated into five different languages, but there's never been a physical version. So this is my ten-year anniversary of publishing with Amazon. I was like, "Fuck it, it's time." So I'm kick, doing a Kickstarter to raise money to print physical books that collect all my Kindle singles, my love letters to Mark Lanigan records, you know, a couple other pieces of writing that that haven't seen the sort of light of day. Um, so that Kickstarter will be going up shortly, and. Um, and yes, and everybody should obviously please give me all your money. I hate fucking shilling for stuff, but whatever it is, what it is. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, fortunately, I'm the only Mishka Shabali out there, so I'm at Mishka Shabali on Twitter. I'm at Mishka Shabali on Instagram. I'm MishkaShabali.com. If you want to buy T-shirts or sign books or records or CDs or fucking whatever, and um, yeah, that's that's it. That's what I got going on. I got you know I got a couple tour dates in Cleveland and uh, and Detroit and Columbus and Athens, Ohio. Sort of dipping my toe back into touring to see how I feel about it. If I'm ready to go back on the road or not. But um, yeah, that's that's my story. Awesome. Well, everyone, be sure to check out his work again. It was so good to talk. I like I like I like miss you so much now, man. After talking to you for the last time, I'm like, oh fuck. I- I know I, I, me too, but I, and also I feel like I need to reassure you that like, um, you're the best and I, I love to hear from you more often. I hope we see each other more often. And also if we don't, I'm still going to fucking totally love you. And you're still going to be, you know, one of my, one of my close friends, you know, that's the kind of friendship I need. And I feel like we both understand that as like self-employed people. Like I need the friend that's going to love me from afar, even when I'm a shitty friend and like can't always be communicative. So like right back at you, everything you just said, like, I really, I really adore you. I really fucking do. When you showed up at the Bikini Kill concert and I didn't know you were in town, I was so fucking happy. That was a great night. That was a fucking awesome night. That's I'm gonna use the picture of us at Bikini Kill for the promo. So, so. Okay, killer, perfect. <laughs> awesome. Perfect. Well, thank you again. Awesome. Good to talk to you, Renee. You too.